0: Hello and welcome to The Field Guides. I'm Bill, and Steve's still somewhere in Illinois identifying plants, and he's also procrastinating editing an unreleased episode. So I'm fortunate enough to be here with Kyle Webster, New York Works Project Coordinator of the Environmental Field Team for New York State Parks. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Bill. Today, we're going to give you the experience of what it's like to be in the field and on the trail. Each month, The Field Guides choose a natural history topic, research the science behind that topic, And then head out to a natural spot to share what we've learned. And we are definitely in a beautiful natural spot today, yeah?
1: Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Large grassland area. That's right. Right next to a floodplain.
0: Now, before I get started, there are two things I need to cover. Number one, if you're a regular listener out there, folks, you may hear in my voice, feeling a little under the weather. So we are out here in mid-September. We're recording, and that means the school year has started. Some of you know I'm a second-grade teacher. And every September, those little nose miners, they can contaminate every surface in the classroom (laughs) and despite all my hand washing i almost always get sick so kyle second thing is i just need to warn you i'm kind of going through that cold medicine haze right now okay so i was late this morning right yeah not not by much not by much but (laughs) (laughs) the reason i was late is i was a good boy got up early went over my notes this morning stuffed some breakfast in but then i had to spend 10 minutes looking for my belt and then uh I realized I was wearing it. <laughs> yep, so, that don't happen. So uh, I have a history of uh, having strange reactions to cold medicine. So uh, if I should start to descend into incoherence, just uh, leave me by the side of the trail. And okay, you can take get the, help. You, no, no, you can take the <laughs> mic and continue on. Uh, I should come out of it shortly. <laughs> All right. All right? <laughs> Sounds good. All right, our topic for today, the reason we are standing here alongside this beautiful grassland is because what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about grassland bird habitat that's right about a a month ago kyle's boss got in touch with me she had listened to the show and she was looking for a way to, to publicize what your team was doing as part of new york state parks right yeah yeah
1: and really just the environmental ishi- initiatives of new york state parks
0: in general that yeah. this is happening and there's a push for it happening throughout the agency but you don't have a a lot of avenues for publicizing that information getting it out to the public right so they contacted us and we sat down and and we may be doing other episodes based on other work the team is doing but we thought grassland birds would be a good place to start. Kyle was willing to give up the Sunday morning and, and come on out. Why don't we just describe, we, we, we've described it a little bit but sure. let's tell the people what we're looking at here.
1: So right now we're, we're standing at the edge of the forest along a floodplain and we're looking out over this glacially formed landscape, lots of rolling hills, Mm -hmm. and we're actually in an old hayfield right now. How many acres would you say this is? So this field's around 50, 55 acres. Okay, surrounded by forest. Surrounded by forest except on one side where there's a road um, and it sort of adjoins another cattle pasture and foraging ground for for that, a farm basically with more hayfields.
0: And people can hear the crickets calling. Yep. We're actually a little farther east in New York State than Steve and I normally record, so we are in Victor, New York, correct? Victor, New York, just south of Rochester. We're about an hour and a half east of Buffalo. Yeah. So how far are we south from Lake Ontario right now? Any idea? I think you could be to the lake in 20, 30 minutes. Okay, so not too far. Not too far. All right, but uh, Victor is relatively rural. Yep. And this site is your home base. Yep, this is
1: where our environmental field office is based for the region.
0: And this is the Ganagdanan? ah, State Historic Site, yep. (laughs) Um, And this site isn't just a site that has been set aside for natural history. It's really chiefly set aside for human history, right? Yeah, so
1: this is a state historic site. There's state parks, there's state boat launches, right? And so this is dedicated for some historical reason. And here, where we are now, Ganondaghan, was the capital of the Seneca Nation
0: in the 1600s. Part of the Iroquois Confederacy.
1: Yep. And so... This area that where our actual office sits is on a, the largest drumlin in the town, so it's, it sits above the rest of the landscape, and that's where the town actually was. Long houses, 4,500 to 5,500 Seneca living here. The area surrounding would have been cornfields, a mix of oak-hickory forests, and mm-hmm. open grasslands.
0: Right. Now you said the term drumlin,
1: so yes. tell people what is that? So I, I mentioned before we were in a glacially formed landscape, right? Yeah. So 14,000 years ago the glaciers came for the last time, and uh, moved things around a bunch, but so <laughs> so glacially, uh, drumlins are they're uh, this egg-shaped land formation. It's basically uh, just till, like s- loams and sand, that gets pushed. So it has a long side. So the way that the di- the direction of the of the glacier moving pushes all the soil in this direction, and then it stops, and so there's an abrupt drop side. And um, you can find
0: these these formations a lot of places in New York State. Yeah, Yeah. all
1: all over, um, especially along the Lake Ontario, Lake Erie Outwash Plain. Cool.
0: So as we mentioned, we are going to be talking about grassland birds, but I wanted to give Kyle the chance to talk a little bit about himself, how he ended up here, and what your position entails here too. Sure. How'd you get into this?
1: I went to Finger Lakes Community College and I originally was going for horticulture. I'm a a plant nerd and always knew I would be and wanted to do something with plants. So (laughs) I was thinking, well, horticulture is growing sounds plants good. and working with them, so that sounds like great, great thing to do. And uh, I got there and I started taking electives, which were the conservation classes. There's a conservation department there. And I quickly realized, conservation <laughs> you know, in that field, that's really the direction I want to go in. So after finishing up my work at Finger Lakes, I transferred to ESF, the Environmental Sciences and Forestry School in Syracuse, and studied conservation biology there. Between graduating Finger Lakes and transferring to ESF, Whitney had called me, offered me an internship here.
0: And Whitney is uh, Cal's Whitney, boss. Whitney that, is my boss. Yep, she the, got in touch with me originally. The stewardship
1: specialist for the Finger Lakes region. Yeah. So I, I had an internship here trying to control pale swallower in one of the grasslands. A lot of the grasslands here and in this general area are really infested with this invasive species, pale swallower. So I spent a summer you know, working to control that, creating a plan to control that, and then went to ESF. And that gave me a great link because I joined the FORCES program, this Friends of Recreation Environmental Stewardship, which is a program started by the regional biologists to sort of link the public with state parks and accomplish educational initiatives, environmental initiatives, things like this. It gives them an opportunity to participate in the natural resources management, gives us an opportunity to have volunteers come help us. So there's a club at, at a lot of schools in the area and I joined that club and then started working at Green Lake State Park, which is another state park in the central region. So that carried me through, and then a position opened up back at Ganondagen, where I had started my internship. And so I came back home, as it were. Nice. And I've been here for two,
0: almost three years now nice. since, yeah. And you enjoy it. I love it. All right, and so your your position here now, what is your main job? So right now we're, we have two US
1: Forest Service funded GLRI grants that we wrote In partnership with um, the Finger Lakes Prism, which is a partnership for regional invasive species management. One of those is for grassland restoration and invasive species management. And, you know, we're standing in a grassland. We're aiming to restore these grasslands for the historical aspect, but also for grassland bird habitat. And so there's that grant that which is a large focus and then another one which restores the riparian corridors along these grasslands and those are along water, so those are waterways yeah those are along the waterways and so these floodplain forests we stand next to while we're in this grassland we're, we're trying to you know manage cohesively trying to create Beautiful intact thing. landscapes as much <laughs> as we can in this area so yeah i do things like that and, you know invasive species management and restoration work
0: i'd say are the focuses of the work i do great yeah. kyle decided he was going to take us out to a grassland here but just to talk a little bit as kind of an introduction to the topic today, I think most listeners know that continent-wide, birds are in trouble. Audubon, National Audubon, Partners in Flight, within the past few years they've released comprehensive studies that kind of give the status. And, and just one stat that really stood out to me is one-third of bird populations in the last 40 years have declined by 50%. So one out of every three bird populations, half of them are gone in the last 40 years. and it's due to a lot of different things, habitat loss, pesticide use, domestic cats, and climate change, of course. Uh, but habitat loss is really the big one. Yeah. And that's why grassland birds are in such trouble. Because let's just talk a little bit about habitat loss here in New York State and in New England. What's happened?
1: Right. We have lots of abandoned agricultural lands, right, that have right. returned to forest.
0: Yeah. Because around 1900, most of New York state was farmland.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah we lost most of our forest and old growth forest is a thing hard to find now. Right? right. Even in some places that we think of as old growth, like the, like the Adirondacks. So yeah. basically all of New York was logged.
0: Yeah. So I think some people, they find it hard to believe that we have way more forest now in the Northeast than we did a hundred years ago. Right. You know, depending on where you are, but I think that's a, a fair general statement. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I would say,
1: yeah. I mean, you can go in a forest now and still see the hedgerows of the farmland, <laughs> right. which it used to be. So we had all this grassland space, much of it returned to forest, but what was left is now intensively farmed agriculture. Right. So the grassland birds moved in from the Midwest. A lot of, in many cases, they were here, but the majority of the populations came from the Midwest. The Great Plains. The Great Plains, yeah. which is even more intensively farmed, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, so the... So
1: they can't go back.
0: In the Midwest, habitat loss of prairie exceeds 90%. So about 96% of the tall grass prairie is gone. Right. Um, east of the Mississippi, it's 99%. And then short grass prairie habitat loss is about 80%. So those birds who had a home, historically speaking, in the Midwest, sure they needed somewhere to go, so they came here. Here they came. But now what's happening?
1: Well, now what's left of grassland here, these old hay fields secession, succession, is it's either intensively farmed or is becoming forest. And so really the, the quality grassland space that's left is on public lands and is generally managed for grassland bird habitat or... There's programs to incentivize farmers to mow later in the summer to allow fledglings to get out of the nest before they hay the field.
0: Yeah, so I did, I did come across one study. And it was actually from this year, 2017. And what it did is it looked at haying practices. And traditionally, most farmers are reluctant to delay haying mm-hmm. because, at least according to the study, the longer they wait, the forage quality reduces it right. uh, goes down. Yeah. So there might be less crude protein and, and so on. But what this study found is that if they delay into July, that first cutting, it doesn't really reduce the quality that much. Um, so there is some reduction. Mm-hmm. But if a farmer is interested in providing more habitat for grassland birds, they can hold off until at least some of the species are finished nesting. And it doesn't reduce quality as much as previously thought. Later on. i I figure we'll kind of wrap up the episode today talking about some ideas of what people can do to preserve grasslands sure and i actually have some specific dates uh, that i did come across uh, for different mowing regimes if you're concerned about preserving grassland bird habitat so i mentioned before how one-third of our bird populations are in decline in danger really of extinction unless we take conservation measures but grassland birds are some of the the most uh, endangered so just to give people an idea of some of the target species I was looking online to see like here in New York, what are the target grassland species that, that we're interested in? Yeah. But before I talk about my list, why don't you just share, I'm sure you have an idea, like what are the species you're concerned about in this field right here?
1: Right. So we have around 236 acres of grassland here, but they're, it's not all continuous. And so grassland birds, they're really not to get too far into the habitat. They require a lot of open space, right? And so our grasslands aren't huge. So we don't get some of those species that are even more endangered. They, they may not have areas. the listing, you're right. Yeah. So the species that we see here, here in this field that we stand right now, we have a colony of bobolinks, they're, obviously they're not here right now. Mm-hmm. And we also get savannah sparrows, grasshopper sparrows, uh, meadowlarks, okay. short-eared owls in the winter nice. with northern harriers in the winter. Okay. Um, yeah,
0: so those were a lot of the species on the list here. And you mentioned the habitat. What I came across is most grassland birds need 20 acres or more. Would you agree with that? Or? Yeah,
1: no, I think I would. Okay. Um,
0: and they definitely benefit more, it seems, from the specific grasslands that they're using to be bordered by open space rather than forest.
1: Right, so the size of the space is, is key. Uh, yeah, and it's sort of dictated by where shrubs and trees are right. and a perceived edge. So, you know, there could be a field 40 acres split down the middle with a hedgerow. And to us, it's like, well, oh, it's a 40 acre field that just has a hedgerow in it, but to a grassland bird that's a perceived edge, that hedgerow, and so it's actually two 20-acre fields. Right. And they won't nest within certain distances of the edge. It can vary, but sometimes it's up to 50 meters, sometimes wow. more. So <laughs> if you have a 20-acre grassland, you put a buffer on that of 50 meters, how many acres are you left with? Not <laughs> enough for a grassland bird. It suddenly
0: shrinks drastically. Right, yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Um, so there's all this long fields don't work as good as square fields. Sure. So the edges are really, really important. And so if you're a field-
0: Why a do these field... birds gotta be so picky? <laughs>
1: They're very picky. Um, But if you have a field that's in the middle of agricultural land, then there's not that perceived edge. So you could have a smaller space in conservation reserve that could be just as effective as a 100-acre field.
0: That could be a 20-acre field. I actually just got, uh, via email, I'm on an email list for Cornell, their lab of ornithology, and they sent out a flyer and it was linked to the State of the Birds report that they release every year. So sure. this was like a supplement to the tr- 2017 State of the Birds report. Yeah. But this had to do with the Farm Bill. And they were talking about how our federal Farm Bill, which does encourage farmers to set aside conservation lands, you know, the Conservation Reserve Program. right? And through the Farm Bill, if farmers do that, they do get paid a certain amount of money to set aside land for conservation purposes. right? one of those purposes could be to conserve grassland bird habitat. Yep. Now, according to this report, it's saying that since that initiative was put into the Farm Bill, which wasn't that long ago, I don't remember exactly how long ago, just off the top of my head, but they're saying grassland bird numbers have started to increase. Now I saw that and I'm like, this is kind of flying in the face of all the research I've just been doing for this episode right. in terms of how populations are doing. Yep. So I was left wondering, are they talking about just on conservation reserve program lands? Right. Maybe Uh, in specific areas? Yeah. Or are they talking about the continent as a whole? So I fired off a couple emails and for the audience out there, I'll report it and I'll put it into our episode links. But if that's true, that's great news. Yeah. But I'm just curious to see, are they talking continent-wide or just on lands that are being managed under this farm bill program?
1: Yeah. I mean, that would be... Great if that was the case, but it seems, like you say, to fly in the face of <laughs> yeah. well, the state of the birds report and things like that. Yeah, because generally speaking, Like 90% or more decreases in some of these yeah, definitely. common grassland birds.
0: So you mentioned uh, bobolinks is one of the target species and yeah. short-eared owls. Other species that I came across, horned larks, grasshopper sparrows, I don't know if you mentioned them.
1: Yeah, uh, we, we definitely have grasshopper sparrows here.
0: And then yeah. in New England, similar species are being managed for... But, I mean, this really goes continent-wide. Like in the Midwest, they're managing for western meadowlarks, eastern meadowlarks, greater prairie chicken, sharp-tailed grouse, uh, long-billed curlew, and mountain plover. I mean, depending on where you are, the species that are targeted might be different. Right. But that grassland habitat is really, almost everywhere in the U.S., is shrinking. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Think about it. Would you rather cut down a forest to start a farm or or (laughs) go to an existing grassland? Um, it's a whole and, lot easier. Right. And yeah. most of these grasslands, too, have fantastic soil for farming. The, the Midwest, the breadbasket, Sure. that's all deep, deep, deep glacial till. And these sandy loams that are... It can be more than really, 10 feet deep, right? Right. Yeah. Which is incredible to think about. That's almost, if you think on a global scale, that's unheard of. Right.
0: We're so very we, fortunate you
1: know, here. In the yeah, exactly. Area. And so we've definitely taken advantage of that. Yeah. That'd help us get where we are, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> But um it's I mean it's similar here, we're on glacial till this is all sandy loam hills and there's not a, a gravelly bedrock bottom until you're down a good bit. I mean the streams over here you can see the bedrock, but the streams probably have a good fifty feet and fifty to hundred feet in elevation difference between the tops of hills and things here. So sure. you have a lot of a lot of soil.
0: So to to keep this area as a field, like what are you guys doing to keep it as grassland?
1: So this field, which is a cool season field So cool season grasses, just to explain, they grow in the cool seasons, right? So the cool, wet times of year. This is your lawn. This is why it goes brown and you need to water it in the middle of of the summer. So this is a cool season field. That's when they're actively growing. And then there's warm season grasslands. And so you can manage them differently. Cool season grasslands like this, we just rotationally mow. So we'll mow half of this this year um, after the nesting season, probably into October. And that'll sort of knockback succession right so it keeps forb abundance from getting too high because it's a grassland they, they like it grassy at least the species that we're managing for here like bobolinks and it also keeps the the shrubs and the trees from establishing okay so that rotational mowing works really well
0: um, and that's ideal right if, if you can you don't want to mow every year
1: or if you're gonna mow every year you can mow half the field or a third
0: right. and
1: sort of do a third every year
0: so you're not um, managing this for hay you're just managing it for grassland birds. Yep. So you guys, you don't have to mow every section every year. Right. Whereas a farmer who is haying, hopefully, if he's going to keep grassland birds, he may have to hay every year, but he can adjust his timing. Sure. With yeah. grassland birds in mind. Definitely. Yeah. Did you do any burns here?
1: Well, in the warm season grasslands, we will burn. Okay. Um, and actually, through this hedgerow, you can't see it from here, but there's a warm season grassland, 30 acres that we're going to burn next spring. Can we head over there? Yeah. All right. I- couple minutes before we get there. That's but, all right. Um, so yeah, the first burn that state parks ever did was last year and it was 20 acres and one of the warm season grasslands across the road here at Kenandagan, And it was it took 40 minutes to do <laughs> and three years to plan. <laughs> that's what Whitney <laughs> likes to say. Um, that so, sounds like a state project.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: it was really exciting to see it happen to get it done. But so burning is definitely the I think the more
0: fun, effective. Yeah, it's definitely fun. Yeah, it's the more
1: effective way uh, to manage that sort of a grassland, especially warm seasons. Um, you can't really burn a cool-season grassland, or so at least you shouldn't. You could really kill the grasses, and
0: they're just not. Uh,
1: they're not. It's not an ecosystem that's adapted to to fire, um, but warm seasons definitely are.
0: So those warm-season grasses, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm going off of my limited knowledge of uh, prairie plants but their root system goes a lot deeper.
1: Yeah, yeah, much, much deeper. They also they're they're beefier grasses, they're much larger, they're much thicker in the stem. And so when their thatch builds up, it doesn't break down very quickly. And so there's actually enough thatch to carry fire. Okay. And if you look here in this cool season, there's not much thatch before the ground even though it hasn't been mown in three years. Yeah. A, a fire would carry through here if it's dry. It would just smolder and be really slow and create a lot of smoke and probably kill a, kill a, a lot, lot of the
0: that. plants that you're trying to perpetuate. Uh-oh. It would kill the stuff you didn't want, but it would also kill the stuff sure. you did <laughs> Yep. So I think that's, that's one thing we can talk about. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in my research, I found that here in the northeast, the warm season grasses that you would find you know, more commonly in the Midwest, Yeah here in the Northeast, they don't provide as good habitat as cool season grasses.
1: Right, that seems to be what the research bears out. Yeah, because um,
0: it said that the, oh, we're okay. going through some tall grass. Yeah,
1: Starting <laughs> so, a little patch of reed canary grass yeah. here. Yeah.
0: This is reed canary grass?
1: Polaris urundinaceae. This is not native. This is a cool season in the Midwest. They would call it really highly invasive, but it works really well for, for grassland birds. If it gets too out of hand, you know, that's something that definitely needs to be controlled. But in this sort of a uh, old agricultural field, not something we're gonna worry too much about. Sticks to the wetter areas.
0: So what I found was that the warm season grasses, the stands that they form are pretty dense and right. almost too dense for uh, a lot of the grass and species we have around here. So it seems that the recommendations are for more cool stem species which are typically non-native.
1: Yeah it's definitely interesting that these birds who were coming or evolved in the midwest where it's all these warm season grasslands are now yeah. doing better in these cool season grasslands. It all comes down to structure right because that's yes. what birds care about.
0: They're, What's going to work best for them?
1: Right. They're, they're all about structure. The structure of the cool season grasses is better for them when they're here nesting than the structure of the warm season grasses and that could be because when they're getting here in April and May, these are greened up. They look like they're better habitat. So this is where they start to establish territories. It could be that the warm season grasslands, because they're so dense and tall and they're not being knocked back or burned in the fall, that when the grassland birds come, they're still really dense and tall because those warm season grasses retain their, their vertical structure really well because mm-hmm. they're really robust. Um, and that
0: may not be as attractive. And that may not be
1: as attractive to grassland birds coming to set up territories and find nesting places, okay. which is why the cool seasons, which is one reason why the cool season grasslands <laughs> might <laughs> might be preferable to the grassland birds.
0: So could you give people an idea of some of the species that you're going to find, like when we talk about cool stem grasses and warm stem grasses? Sure, yeah. So, looking so we're back...
1: walking through one, right? Reed canary grass.
0: You have this Phalaris
1: or Smooth brome, bromus anermis, another non-native one that gets planted for cattle pasture, cattle forage. Timothy grass, phleum praetense, orchard grass, dactylus, yeah so those are the really common ones.
0: The real cool season grasses. Yeah, yeah.
1: right, and those those ones get planted for hay all the time. And the dactylus, the orchard grass, and the timothy are bunch grasses, they're very cespitose, so they form this nice structure. That the grassland birds like. That's what warm season grasses do as well. Okay. Cause they form that nice bunching structure. That's where they build their nest. Um, that's where a lot of them will build their nests is yeah. around the bunch, in the bunch, near the bunch. It leaves space open on the ground, right? So they have pathways to walk. A lot of grassland birds are feeding on the ground.
0: Um, Rather than fly off, they'll just run along the ground through the grass. Yeah, yeah.
1: right. Yeah. Or even just when they're foraging, they're foraging from different areas in the bunch that's you know. why those sparrows are so hard to find in grasslands They're yeah right trying to ID well even when they sing like grasshopper sparrows they sing if there's like a fence they say that they'll sing from the lowest <laughs> rung on the fence um, so you'll hear it but you won't ever see it um, whereas like a, a meadow lark, that'll sing from the fence post. you see meadowlarks you hear them you
0: know. yeah I think what I'll try to do uh, I was thinking about this earlier is for some of the species that we mentioned here I'll um, in post production. I'll put in some of their calls, yeah, uh, so people can uh, can hear. Because right. the eastern meadowlark, for people that don't know, it just has this beautiful yellow breast with a black bib and has right. a beautiful song. And it's very flute-like. Yeah, yeah. you right. know it as soon as you hear it. Yep. And then
1: the bobolink. You have to put the bobolink in there. Yeah. It sounds like R2D2. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh,
0: the grasshopper sparrow with their grasshopper. Very, yeah. very raspy. Very unique call. Yeah. I mean not, it's not hard to ID it by its call. I know we were talking before about cool season grasses, right? Yep. So let's, what are some of the examples of warm season grasses?
1: So ones that typically get planted are big blue stem, Indian grass, uh, andropogon gerardii for big blue stem, sorgastrum newtons, um, Indian grass, little blue stem will often get planted. That one's skyzacrium sc- scoparium. Um, that one's much less tolerant of other vegetative competition. Okay. So if you seed it with Big blue and Indian grass, which are pretty competitive species, it's not you won't. Yeah, you won't okay. see it unless you get like a really droughty area within there you planted. Then it might persist. Other ones that get planted: switchgrass, panicum, uh, variegatum. And
0: that was the one. Yeah,
1: there's there's others get planted, but they're not. They're either endangered in the state, or they're actually not native. They're actually a western species. Okay. Um, Bootaluah, the side oats grandma. That one's endangered in New York. Pretty pretty common out west. So we wouldn't plant that one here. But the uh, planting rare things,
0: the warm the switchgrass you mentioned. Sure, that was the one that was mentioned in the article you gave me. Uh, Kyle gave me a great article by Dr. Christopher Norman from two thousand two. It appeared in the Auk, called "On Grassland Bird Conservation in the Northeast." And I'll put that into our episode notes. I recommend everybody reading that. It wasn't so much a, a study as it was an opinion piece. Right. But very readable talking about just the state of grassland birds yeah. here in the it northeast. It
1: gives you a good context, I think. Yeah, and to I think, think about things.
0: That was the one that mentioned the switchgrass in particular, uh, where it was planted in western New York, grassland bird abundance just is not very high. So they seem to prefer the cool season.
1: Right. And just structurally they're so different than the cool seasons. I mean, switchgrass, when it's mature, is taller than us. You can't see through it. You could barely walk through it if it's planted really densely. Yeah, because this... It's super,
0: super dense and tall. This meadow we're standing in here, this grassland, I mean, the grass is tall, but it's only up, even in the highest places, it's only up to about maybe our chest. Right. I mean, we can walk through it fairly easily. Yeah. And I imagine during the spring, when the birds are coming back to nest, it's much lower.
1: Yeah, it'll it'll definitely be lower. The snow packs it down and whatnot, and until it seeds... I mean, the seed stocks are almost as tall as me, but where the actual vegetation is, is like a little below waist height. So explain
0: explain to me though, if you can, as I was reading, I was a little confused because here in the Northeast, in the Norman paper, it was saying that birds are gonna do better. They seem to do better with the cool season grasses versus the warm season grasses. Mm -hmm. But in the Midwest, the warm season grasses are the native. So how come the birds did well with the warm season grasses there?
1: Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting.
0: We don't know for sure. Uh, yeah, certainly I don't know for
1: sure. I have a couple theories okay. that have just been cooking in my head. So one might be we plant the warm season grasses, right? And typically when burns are done is in the spring, at least for the northeast. That seems to be the sort of like standard. Fall burns don't happen as much. If you can think back to when bison roamed through the prairies, right? there would have been instances where they're roaming through the prairies and they're knocking down, knocking back, causing a large disturbance to these warm season grasses, knocking their structure down in the fall. Also burns probably would have happened in the summer and the fall, the drier seasons. And so because that stuff is getting knocked down in that season, when they're come, when the grassland birds are returning from their migration in the spring, the, the structure is different and it is low, like this cool season grassland.
0: So you're saying we need to burn more often and bring bison to the Northeast. <laughs> yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> All we need to do is replicate that sort of disturbance. Okay. So if you, if we can burn, that's great. If you could mow,
0: that would also work. So how come burns typically just take place in the spring? It's always been done that way or there's more moisture so they're more controllable. What? It's a good question. I'm not totally sure. Okay. I mean, that's that's what the DEC does here. They,
1: they pretty much almost exclusively burn in the month of April. And that's our State Department of Environmental Conservation. Yep. There, we do have reasons for burning in the spring, now that I'm thinking about them. When you burn in the spring, one thing that happens is you favor grasses. Oh. Especially warm season grasses, because um, you're burning outside of their active growing season. So you, you're actually not favoring cool seasons. So you're they're actively growing, you knock them back. By the time things respond, it's the warm season, and then the warm seasons have more light, more space, more nutrients, and are able to, to grow. They're more competitive. But also, like cool seasons, forbs are negatively affected by spring burns. Um, so so you forbs, know, yeah, for people that don't know. For wildflowers, um, broadleaf plants, right? Not um, grasses. Not grasses. Yeah. Everything but a grass is yeah. a form, basically. It's um, not a treat. Yeah, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know why we have these different words for them, but anyways. Um, <laughs> Just to exclude so, people. <laughs> right, I guess so. So there's these ways that they grow, right? Like grasses have basal meristems. Oh, okay. Wildflowers have apicals. So when you cut off the apical meristem, right, you, it needs to make a new one where you cut it, which takes time and energy, right? So for the same reason, the warm seasons have the advantage over the wildflowers as well as the cool seasons. So you burn in spring to, to do those two things. So a lot of what we have in some of these grasslands are invasive species, and they're mostly cool season grasses, like reed canary grass, because we don't want that taking over a warm season grassland, and things like crown vetch or pale swallowwort to some limited, ex- limited extent. So by burning in the spring, we're managing for these invasive species, okay. trying to reduce their and abundance, favor the warm seasons. That, that also affects the native things, though. So we're, we're also creating a more dense warm season grassland without as many native things. So you have to balance both.
0: So here are you you actively managing more for warm season or cool season reasons? It depends on the grassland.
1: Okay. There's two grassland areas, one's 30 acres, one's 40, that were planted with warm seasons for historical reasons because of journal entries that suggest that there was large open grasslands around this Seneca village and town. How um, big? hundreds of leagues to the east west and the south so all over the place right it would seem um, certainly there was like oak hickory forest intermixed with these Um, they're probably something more like an oak opening so large open grown oak trees with large open spaces in between them um, sort of like a park like or cemetery like setting but you can imagine that but naturally occurring because of fire because the native peoples would use fire to manage their landscape oh so could we call that naturally occurring or do you think the natives were well, actively managing to keep those grasslands, grasslands? I think they were managing for grassland. Okay. And they were man- they were burning f- the oak hickory forests too. They would burn the leaf litter so that it's easier to stalk and hunt a deer when there's no leaf litter. They would also do it because it favors the oaks and the hickories, which are nut trees, which are a huge source of food. Yeah. They were sophisticatedly managing the <laughs> landscape for their purposes. It just happened to benefit a lot of other things as well. It seems, but anyway, so we had we planted warm season grasslands, and we're going to manage them as warm season grasslands for historical reasons, but also for grassland birds. But there's also invasive species in them, so there's all these different
0: things that you have to contend with to figure out what is the best sure. method. But here at a state park site, yeah. you're not just managing for for ecology; you're also managing for historical purposes. Yeah. So um, why don't we head into the shade? Sure. And I can bring up a topic that we've been skirting, or at least I haven't brought up yet, but I think it's an important one. So what we're doing is we're leaving the cool season grassland now, right? And then we're heading into this. It's almost like a tree island. On the other side of it is the warm season, right? Yeah, the warm yeah. season grassland.
1: So this whole stream corridor is is forested. It's just really early successional forest, walnuts and, and yeah. ash. We have EAB here, emerald ash borer. Yeah. And these, they're it's in the stand, so we don't expect the ash to be sticking around for very much, longer, much longer, which is a concern for a lot of reasons. So this is going to look a lot different sometime soon, but we are planning to replant a lot in here and maintain the riparian corridor, because that's really important for watershed health, for maintaining diversity. I mean, you come in and out of these grasslands and there's little pockets of wetlands and the floodplain forest, and these are some of the most diverse places at the site, which is really interesting. These little corridors with the streams. yeah, Yeah. Yep. And so having grasslands on both sides that are productive, hopefully diverse achieving all these goals so we want them to, but also having the floodplains between them achieve those same kind of goals and creating a landscape that's intact and diverse across the park is really important for us.
0: And that goes into the the point I wanted to make, uh, that paper you shared with me by, by Dr. Norman, I liked it because he delved into, you know, the status of grassland birds in the Northeast and how they're declining really since the 1990s. About a dozen species have been listed by states in New England as threatened and endangered um, New York as well. Yeah. But he did talk about how, if we go back to pre-Columbian times, to before European settlement, there weren't a lot of grasslands in the Northeast. Right. You know, you talked about, there were some journal entries from missionaries, I'm assuming, yeah. um, recorded grasslands here. There were the Hempstead grasslands in Long Island, some up in Maine. But overall, this was forest in the Northeast. You know some people like to tell the story that a squirrel could have started at the mississippi go to the atlantic and never touched the ground now that is an oversimplification <laughs> but as dr norman put it there's not a lot of evidence that at least on the landscape level right. that natives were clearing huge swaths that for the most part if you were at the northeast at that time it was forested which means there weren't a lot of grassland birds here right they were out west so when we're managing you could have some people saying, why are we managing for grassland birds? I know as I started reading the article, it dawned on me, wait a minute, there weren't grassland birds here. If we're trying to restore ecosystems, my kind of gut reaction is to go for that pre-Columbian ideal. And I know that too is an oversimplification, but I loved that Dr. Norman in the article, he wasn't afraid to say, if we're gonna manage for grassland birds, we have to go against some tenets of conservation biology. One of those tenets is the pre-Columbian ideal. As some people say, if we're going to restore ecosystems, we've got to go back to that pre-Columbian ideal. Again, I know that's an oversimplification. But also, typically, uh, if we're going to restore ecosystems, we want to allow those ecosystems to be dynamic. That's another tenet of conservation biology. But to maintain grasslands, you got to manage them. Right. Because if you don't manage these grasslands here, they're going to turn into forest, right? Sure. Yeah. And, and then the last one is, typically we're trying to restore native diversity. But as we've been talking about, the cool season grasses... At least now the research is saying that the cool season grass is the birds are more abundant, the grassland birds. So what would you say to someone who said, what are you doing you shouldn't be managing for grassland birds? (laughs) (laughs) Um, The first tenant, right?
1: Um, The pre-Columbian ideal. I mean, we do have naturally occurring pockets of grassland. So we did have these species occurring in New York. It just so happens that we made a lot more grassland space where they were, got degraded, is currently farmland, not productive habitat for them. So we do host a significant portion of the populations now. That, to me, seems like a moral imperative for us because they're using these spaces and there's some of the last spaces left available to them that we need to conserve them. Otherwise, these species are going to disappear. They can't go west. Yeah, they can't. The, yeah, this is the last place for them. Yeah. And, I mean, they have all sorts of issues in their migratory range as well. Bobolinks are hunted as agricultural pests in Argentina,
0: wow.
1: which is kind of crazy, right? <laughs> they're unprotected there. But we have... Th- some of the last space for them, so it makes sense to conserve it for them. Otherwise, right. they'll disappear.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm playing devil's advocate here, but those ideals are just that, ideals. Right. And if we had an ideal situation where we could be restoring massive amounts of grasslands in the West, all right, well, then we could try to yeah. work that where we're species are, are being moved out there and allowed to migrate there, but that's not going to happen. Uh, we're not going to be restoring vast swaths of prairie. Yeah. So this is really for for many grassland species the northeast is where a significant portion of their populations have a home so if we weren't going to manage for them as you said those species could disappear um, or, or at least
1: would be in critical danger at that point if right they i didn't mean have even worse than they are right yeah, yeah and they're already worse off that was the second tenant here the um
0: second tenant was um, the management yeah so right. these grasslands need to be managed so we're not allowing the ecosystem dynamic if we want to keep grassland habitat we need to manage for it that could be mowing pesticide herbicide use right fires yeah fire for sure i mean
1: grasslands are dependent ecosystems right so even native naturally occurring grasslands need disturbance and so if you want grassland period even if it's naturally occurring you're going to have to disturb it Um, that's its stable state that's when it's at dynamic equilibrium is when it's in a disturbance regime I mean, even forests have a disturbance regime. They're just different. <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot longer, not, usually. <laughs> yeah, a lot longer, maybe a little more local and spread out. Um, but
0: even in, in a forest system and a grassland system, historically, I mean, what was the major disturbance?
1: It, it was fire. Right. It was grazing. And where they persist now and where they may have persisted without grazing or fire is really droughty areas, right. rocky outcrops. There's a There's a native... Naturally occurring rush oak opening or oak opening in rush called rush oak, oak, oak openings to DC unique area. Is that is the, the last and it's the last, it's the farthest east occurring remnant oak opening wow. um, in the United States. And it's only 13 miles from here, but it occurs on this really shallow soiled area. It's a dolomite knob, so it's like really calcium rich soil which is um, why it wasn't farmed right? which is why it wasn't farmed and the family protected it and then donated it to the town and then the town donated it to the state which is how it escaped cultivation yeah, yeah. Um, but so that needs to be burned and it does get burned but otherwise it would it would still
0: return to forest In that site as well as this site here you can't allow them to naturally burn
1: yeah because there's houses and right. other properties and
0: so those ideals about conservation biology those work great when you can have large areas that you're managing, hundreds of thousands of acres, like some people are lucky enough to be managing out west. Yeah. But here in the east, that doesn't happen very often. Sure. We're going to have large areas where if a fire does occur, maybe you could allow it to burn, to burn naturally. So here it seems we have to make some compromises. We have to take a large scale view. And that's the other point I was going to make about Dr. Norman's paper is he said we shouldn't just be managing necessarily for grassland birds. We should be managing for birds and i would take that one step further and say wouldn't it be great if we could manage not just for birds but for other organisms as well and really have a comprehensive management plan and i know that's a pie in the sky ideal but
1: well i mean it's something to shoot for though right right
0: certainly i mean
1: we have over 100 species occurring at the site so not 100 grassland bird species um but yeah we are trying to manage the whole site for them and actually we're going to be dedicated as a bca Which is? A bird conservation area, which is the state designation for state properties. Nice. Actually, I think we are formally now one. The ceremony just hasn't happened. It's going to happen here soon in October. I mean, and that's for the grassland space that we have, but also because of the general diversity that's here. And then, you know, you have the floodplains between the grasslands. We're not going to cut down the floodplains to expand more grassland space because they are diverse areas in their own right, with a different assemblage of birds and things like that. Sure. so yeah, managing landscape is is definitely ideal, and and we're not ten thousand acre reserve here or anything like that, but that doesn't mean that we can't apply those same ideals in some senses. With the with, realization that you're limited in terms of right, your acreage. Right. Ideally, things. we would let we would wait for lightning to strike and burn the grassland, <laughs> but the fire department would come really quickly and yeah. put it out, and no grassland would actually really burn. That would have to. So we a- need to work with them to to. Light the fire and control it um, to make sure that that happens.
0: That would have to be a very accurate light. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, there's there's a tree out in the middle of this warm season grassland. It's a shagbark hickory. The top is dead. It's been struck by lightning and it's clearly burned in the center. So, at some point, you know, it's It's not. It can't be that old of a tree. So,
0: why don't we head over into the uh, the warm season grassland? Yep. Uh, We're gonna have to cross this little creek up here. So. As we mentioned before, we're we're heading through this little riparian area with some trees. Lots
1: of uh, riparian or riverbank wild rye, some other native species. Helonie glabra, the turtlehead. And lots of Virginia creeper
0: around. Poison ivy.
1: Poison ivy, it's a lot of poison ivy. A bunch of asters, lanceleaf aster. Um, some of the more open areas you get. Symphyotrichum firmum and. Punicium. It's a purple-stemmed aster. Okay. Yeah, so these these floodplain areas, they're, they're some of the most diverse areas at the site as well, so definitely don't want to, uh, to disrupt those for grassland bird habitat.
0: Do you think if, you know, because we were talking before about how if you have a grassland and you see a row of shrubs, and to us it doesn't seem like a big deal, but to a grassland bird it is. Yeah, right. Do you think if you took out, the trees in this riparian area. Grassland bird diversity would increase if you connected these two grasslands.
1: It's possible it could. Um,
0: We'd be reducing maybe overall diversity. Yeah,
1: so there's what? There's alpha diversity, there's beta diversity, and then there's gamma diversity. I don't know about this. (laughs) Alpha diversity, you have an ecosystem, and it's the the diversity within that ecosystem, or that patch, whatever you're defining. Beta diversity, I'm going to have to... I'm getting this right. <laughs> yeah. Beta diversity is the diversity between the two, and gamma diversity would be the diversity of both combined. But basically, what I'm getting at is we have a diverse floodplain. We have two different kinds of grasslands on each side. And so we might get a couple more grassland bird species, but we might lose 20 floodplain bird species, not to mention all the other species that are using the floodplain. Right. And so we might gain some alpha diversity might gain a couple more grassland bird species, but our total gamma diversity is going to drop significantly. And so that's a loss. Right. And so if we could remove some of this area, maybe a thinner part of the hedgerow to make it more see-through, for lack of a better word, yeah. um, to make it seem like it's not such an edge, a little more, more savanna ish yeah. and still maintain a healthy riparian corridor that's you know, maintaining the stream temperature and things like that, the floodplain birds aren't going to leave. There's all these sort of things. And you might bump up um, grassland diversity. Then we might get a grassland bird. So if we could, if we thought that that could happen, I think we'd do it. Maybe um,
0: when the uh, ashes die.
1: Yeah, it, it'll be interesting because it's, it's about half ash. It's about half walnut in that floodplain, this dense area. So it might happen, All right, I don't so, think it's likely.
0: So we're, we're standing on the edge of uh, the warm season grass. Right. And this stuff is a lot taller. Yep. So folks, when uh, we enter the grass here, you're going to hear a lot of mic noise. 'Cause these grasses are gonna be hitting the mic. Right. These are over our heads. So yeah. this is blue stem? This right here
1: in front of us is Indian grass. Okay. So it's got more of a typical grass seed head that paniculate form. So those strum newtons. And see how it's bunching? You know, that's that habit that they have. Whereas all the cool seasons that are sort of mixed in this wet area with them are very rhizomatous.
0: There's more spread out.
1: Yeah, well they have underground rhizomes. So yeah. there's like a shoot here and goes a couple inches or centimeters or feet depending yeah. on the species. Puts up another one. Whereas So yeah, the, they're much more the diffuse. Indian grass is more clumped. Right. And there's an individual there, space individual. And then the ones with the turkey feet on top, those are the big blue stem. It's a
0: good way to describe
1: it. <laughs> it's kinda <laughs> interesting. Yeah, so I'll put that in and see.
0: So I can see the uh the hickory tree you were pointing out up ahead.
1: Yep. Yeah, with the dead top there.
0: And then there's something flying up in the air. Do you think, turkey vulture? Yeah. All right, so we are grass-whacking here <laughs> way through the tall grass.
1: Yeah, hopefully not bushwhacking. Yeah. That would not be good grassland bird habitat.
0: And since we are in September, we're here in September, we don't have to worry about disturbing any nesting species right now.
1: Right. It is possible we, we could see some interesting birds, maybe some grassland birds. But they would just be coming from somewhere farther up north where they were nesting. Right? Passing Backing through. by. Yeah.
0: So we're cresting a hill. I can only see about 10 feet ahead. <laughs> not even. And we
1: should have a, a decent view if we can see above the grasses. Okay. It will get shorter at the crest because it does get a little droughtier.
0: Oh. But not by much. <laughs> so right here, kind of in the middle of it, it really seems to be dominated by the them and Indian grass, right?
1: Yeah. And if you look around too.
0: That's basically what's in here. I don't see much else. Yeah. There was a...
1: There's like some dandelion.
0: Not much, though. There's
1: some hawkweed.
0: There's a black-eyed Susan. Right, and
1: those are planted, too. And so the black-eyed Susans should be much more abundant. But again, we have these... how you know, it thins out when we get to the top here? Yep. So we have these really dense warm season grasses. You know, it's not very diverse up here, which is definitely an issue. And then the density and the height when grassland birds are returning. It's not productive habitat for them. So, I mean, we're working to try and figure out ways to to deal with that. We're going to mow some test plots in some of the grasslands. We burned half of one, so we have a a burned spring, mown fall, not burned, mown fall. We'll have a mown fall, burned spring in this area where we are. and controls to go with those. Just mow a little one-acre patches to see, do we reduce some of the density? Do we get more forbs, more wildflowers? just to see the response.
0: So in those test patches, are you just going to allow things to regenerate or are you going to be doing any planting?
1: No, we'll just allow things to regenerate. We'll okay. see what's there and what happens. Replanting is definitely an option, but planting things into a really established warm season stand like this is...
0: Because <laughs> the roots are so... <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> deep, you know it's roots. so
1: dense for light as well and space... It could be really difficult to get stuff to establish.
0: Now you were mentioning before that one of the things you might be thinking, or other people might be thinking of trying out, is for the warm-stem grasses to see if grassland birds respond more favorably is to spread them out a little more.
1: Right. So this this was planted at like seven to nine pounds an acre of seed, and so you get this really really dense, dense. stand. <laughs> um, and where it gets a little more diffuse. And a little more patchy, like there's a patch of Indian grass there, some low warm seasons or cool seasons mixed in with a lot of wildflowers and things like that. So you get this up and down, you get vertical diversity, vertical structural diversity, you get compositional diversity and species diversity plant wise. That could be more productive habitat, okay. And so we have an area that we're restoring or enhancing, which had a lot of hedgerows, it had a lot of shrubs, it's on its way to shrubland, really. And so we're Taking that back, it also has a lot of pal swallowwort, one of these invasive uh, species yeah. that's really bad. So we've been controlling that, removing the hedgerows and the shrubs, and we're gonna establish a warm season grassland. But we're gonna plant it at two to three pounds an acre, not seven to nine. And we're gonna include a lot more wildflower diversity and include some native cool season grasses. So there is that year round, like so it's greening up earlier, it's gonna have vegetative structure that's favorable, at least in some areas to grassland birds as it gets established as the warm season get established cuz they'll take 2 to 3 years before they're really visible. No, I don't
0: yeah. I don't know much about prairie habitat and, and the composition of the plants there, but do you know historically in the midwest these short grass and um, tall grass prairies were they more spread out and more diverse than what we're standing in right now?
1: That's my understanding and I definitely don't want to come across as like an expert <laughs> in midwestern prairie or whatever like cuz I'm not. But that's my understanding is well, that... We're in
0: cent- almost central New York, so I think it's okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is my experience as working in old agricultural fields, yeah. not, uh, not Midwestern remnant prairies. But they had a lot of wildflowers. They were really diverse. There's these super diverse areas yeah. that used to
0: exist. And, Unfortunately, are um, mostly gone.
1: Right, and yeah. even prairies that are planted out there often get criticized as being not as diverse or overly dense with warm seasons. And we had someone come out from the Audubon, the Cornell Lab of ornithology down in Ithaca, because we try and work with partners and work with the experts to figure out, you know, are we moving in the right direction? Good. Um, You know, so Dr. Chris Norman is someone who we've reached out to and has graciously come out to tour the grasslands and be like, well, you should change this or, you know, this is nice and give us a little perspective on, on things. But the Cornell person, or the Audubon person rather, suggested some of the edges of the grassland where it wasn't really planted, but where things have snuck out. It's a lot patchier, like I was explaining he's like oh if you could get it to look something like that um, Uh, it would be much more productive so that's what we're aiming for in this area that we're planting in the
0: fall all right well what i wanted to do because we're nearing uh our time limit here sure what i wanted to do is talk a little bit about climate change yeah um, because we haven't really touched on that yet but just give people a very general overview of how grassland birds are responding to climate change and national audubon has recently released a website talking about how birds are going to respond to climate change. I don't know if you've seen it, climate.audubon.org. But they have these maps that show uh, between now and 2080 how a uh, number of birds, their ranges will shift in the face of climate change, yeah. you know, what we're projecting to happen. So there was one that I, that I found distressing but very, very interesting was the Baird Sparrow, which we don't have around here. Right. That's one that they're projecting that it will lose perhaps 100% of its range by 2080 yeah so if things don't change so a lot of people think well things are just gonna shift north but that's not it's not not that simple right? you know as, as we've talked about a lot today yeah it's complex and the Baird Sparrow you find them in areas of the west they can't just shift north for whatever reason the the habitat just isn't suitable and what's predicted for climate change those areas to the north of its range aren't going to be suitable so along those lines Uh, I looked at several studies. There was one in 2016 from last year that used the North American Breeding Bird Survey. And I'm going to talk about that a little later on. That's something that people can actually participate in uh, to help monitor the status of birds. Uh, This appeared in the condor and they wanted to evaluate the yearly abundance of 14 grassland bird species and see how they did related to... Variations in precipitation and temperature. Now, this was in the Badlands, the Badlands and Prairie's Bird Conservation Region. And they actually looked at 1980 to 2012, so they had a nice spread. A good range. And it pretty much played out like you, you would think. With projected warmer and drier weather, sparrows especially may be threatened by future climate change. But they did say climate change is going to vary among species. So some species, their ranges may expand. Right. But overall, it's expected that diversity will decrease. Not a good thing. They also talked about another study looked at forest birds versus grassland birds. And this study looked at 30 forest species and 10 grassland breeding birds over 20 years. And they were looking at whether increased amounts of available land cover would modify responses to climate change. And would the effect of increasing land cover amount, would that have an impact too? So they kind of looked at a spectrum of heavily forested to lightly forested, and then in grasslands, you know, how sparse, how thick and what they did find is that forest birds generally speaking are not going to be impacted as much that those forests seem to have a buffering effect and I think that's one reason we talked about at the beginning of this episode that grassland birds out of you know these bird species that many of them are declining grassland bird species seem to be impacted the most just because standing out here yes this grass is tall but not a ton of cover Right. compared to a forest it's
1: a, it's a harsh ecosystem to yeah. try and live in for sure it's hot out here it's hot out here when it rains it pours yeah definitely not as much cover
0: and then the last one i found which i, th- I thought was neat was a uh, henslow sparrow that is one it's expected that it's not going to shift northward but that its range will actually contract to the southwest huh to me that was kind of a surprise i've right, yeah. expected most stuff was going to shift northward but just because of where its range is situated, and how things are going to be changing around that range. Our best projections say that it's actually, the range is going to contract, but it'll be contracting to the southwest, even into warmer and drier areas. That's really interesting. So as we keep saying, it's species by species. We're going to be looking at how is it going to impact this species? How is it, how is it going to impact this species? It's very tough to say all grassland birds will be impacted this way, or all forest dwelling birds will be impacted this way. Why can't nature be simple? <laughs> and then make, it wouldn't be so interesting. That is true. That is very true. Yeah. So is there, is there anything else you want to cover?
1: Yeah, definitely. That? So if people are really wanting to see more of this work happen, not just here, not just in the Finger Lakes region, but in state parks across the state, advocate for that and reach out and say that that's important to you, and seeing that happen is important to you. Reach
0: out to uh, politicians and...
1: Yep, yeah. reach out to your local representative, reach out to the director
0: of state parks if you want to, or, or of the region. And let them know that these people are doing good work. Yeah. Yeah, because there's projects like this not just in New York State, but in lots of states, right? Yeah, yeah. definitely. I
1: mean, we're, we're not unique in that we're doing environmental management.
0: Right. But, like many of those others, there's not a big publicity budget. And that's, <laughs> exactly. why, that's yeah. why you guys have to come on podcasts like ours to get the word out, right?
1: Sure. And <laughs> we try and make the work seamless with what's already existing there um, so it's not obvious. Right. At least that's the intent in a you lot of cases. You don't want it to be standing out. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you might not know that things are happening sure. um, but they are. All and, right. it's, and it's important.
0: Well, listen, uh, we appreciate what you're doing so keep doing it. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Alright, so I wanted to wrap up with suggestions on what to do. Because in a lot of the the research I was doing, especially when when I would go to sites like Audubon or the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, they would be giving recommendations about what to do. Mm -hmm. Things like, if you have a grassland, you can try to maintain it as a grassland and encourage open space. Like we mentioned before, managing fence rows and shrub lanes to minimize those because they are a big deal to grassland species. You want to control shrubs and woody vegetation as much as possible. And then you want to time mowing and hay cutting to allow young grassland birds to escape. So Audubon said, if you want to maximize benefit to grassland, species, grassland bird species while still mowing, then you would only mow after August 20th. And this is in New York State, because right. uh, this is through Audubon, New York. And then they take it one step lower. But if you, you want to mow more than that, if, you, if you're managing somewhere for hay, Then you want to do it once before the 20th of May and once after August 20th. Those are kind of the the two best. Um, Anything more than that, and they're going to allow only limited successful breeding. So once before June 1st, and then after July 20th only. Those are the schedules. And I'll post this stuff onto our episode notes too and links to these websites. But I don't think most people have a grassland (laughs) that they're (laughs) managing. So most of our listeners probably don't, don't have that great habitat to take care of so I would encourage people to look into some citizen science projects if you're concerned about helping not just grassland species but all bird species Uh, you can consider signing up for project feeder watch through the Cornell Lab of Ornithology Uh, you can participate in eBird that's something you can download to your phone and when you're out you can just be keeping track of the birds you're seeing the birds you're hearing and that's reported to uh, researchers Uh, iNaturalist is one that's not just for birds but yep. it's for uh, insects, for plants, fungus. Yeah, for everything. That, that's a great one. And then there's two websites I would send people to: Americanornithology.org and birds.cornell.edu. Uh, both of those sites lists several uh, citizen science projects that you can take care of that are designed to help just the average citizen participate in avian research.
1: I will say too that we use eBird here. You know, we survey the grasslands and some of the forests for, for birds and um, of that is done through volunteer help from like local birding societies like the rochester birding association or people with the local audubon chapter and everything we see too gets reported to eBird. great it's it's definitely it's a huge resource too and if someone was out here hiking and happened to see a henslow sparrow that's something we would really want to know right (laughs) um or or even just grasshopper sparrows in a new area or whatever so and it is something that's a really useful tool
0: yeah and it's something other people can check too like yeah i've just gotten into it over the past couple years, but I still have to remind myself when I'm going somewhere to check eBird first to see if there's been any sightings of note. Right. And it keeps track of your personal life list, where you saw what bird. So it's a great tool, not just for providing data for researchers, but also just for your own personal bird enthusiasm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So Kyle, if people are interested in finding out more about your work and the work of the environmental field team in New York state parks, what do they do?
1: Well, so we have an email, environmental field team, at parks.ny.gov. No spaces in the environmental field team. You can email us there. Everyone on the environmental field team gets that email. So you can just say, you know, hello all, and ask your question or whatever you whatever you'd like to say. There's also the New York State Parks website. You could check that out. And if you want more information on Ganondagan specifically, there's also a Ganondagan website, ganondagan.org, and you can learn about the Seneca history, there's a museum here. You can come check that it is out. It's a beautiful and, and, museum. Yeah, it's, it's gorgeous. It's yeah. brand new, too. It's only two, three years old.
0: And then they do have um, public
1: programs here as well, right? They do have public programs here. There's a replica longhouse you can tour. Um, yeah, it's impressive. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. And, and they do they do workshops and things like that. So,
0: yeah, it's a, it's a happening site and I uh, encourage you to get out. So if you find yourself near Rochester, New York, make sure you stop here and check it out. Absolutely. Alright. So, folks, before we wrap up and say goodbye, I just wanted to thank our patrons for their donations if you're interested in supporting the podcast financially Steve and I we appreciate it so much our list of uh, growing patrons it means so much to us that they're willing to make a financial donation you can head over to patreon.com and find the field guides as always if you're not able to make a financial donation you can support us by leaving a review on iTunes starred reviews are great but if you can write a review that's even better that'll help put our podcast in front of people that share your interests and itunes will recommend the podcast to them you can also follow us uh, at facebook and uh, share our posts and our episodes through facebook you can like us on facebook you can check out our website field guides thefieldguidespodcast.com and you can email us at thefieldguidespodcast at gmail.com you can also follow us on twitter and on instagram so kyle thank you very much for coming on out and showing me around today i Absolutely. appreciate it I had fun. and i'm hoping in the future uh, we'll be able to work again and Get other people from the team in front of the mic, too. Definitely. All right. Thanks again. And folks, we will see you next time.